Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. God, I thank you for this morning as we get to come back to your word and and see that you are so much bigger and more complex than, than our minds could ever truly grasp. And as many questions as that uh, causes us to wrestle with, it's, it's a good place to be, um, to sit underneath someone so magnificent. And so God, as, as we study your self-revelation this morning, help us to know you more. Help us to know Christ and him crucified and why that's beautiful and good news for us. Gosh, your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, in sociology, um, there are different stages of spiritual development. And so when you are a child, um, your stage is you generally believe what your parents believe. And so if you grew up in a Christian home, you're probably going to have Christian beliefs. If you grew up in an agnostic home, agnostic beliefs, and Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, whatever it might be, you're going to adopt more or less the belief system of your, your home. But as you begin to get older, uh, specifically as you hit those, those early teenage years, you enter, you begin to prospective stage. And in the reflective stage, you begin to process questions you have about your spirituality. And so if you have a question that is conflicting to what you grew up believing, you generally kind of hold back on that because if that's off or if that's wrong or if that was incorrect, it could shake up and and rattle so many other things. And so you, you hold back. But eventually you will move from that reflective stage into what's known as a responsive stage. And the responsive stage is is when you begin to not only process these questions, but answer them and and you have your own spirituality. It's no longer the spirituality of your family. It's it's, this is your belief system. And so when, when people ask me, hey, Jeff, I see so many college students walk away from their faith and, and what's happening here? How can we stop it? Um, I truly believe that the walking away process, it doesn't happen in college. It, it happens when kids are around 13 years old. It's just that in college, they're finally able to, to process and verbalize the, the kind of the, the inner turmoil or the, the rumblings, the boilings that have been happening for a long time. And, and so with that being said, I think it's so important at, at every life stage for the church to be a place where you can ask tough questions, a place where the skeptic is welcome, a place where it's safe to say, I'm just, I'm wrestling. And, and so the truth is, is there's a difference between the person who's honestly asking questions, seeking for answers, and the person who is, as I would say, locking the gate. And locking the gate is taking a position that says, I won't let anything in that I can't understand, or I won't let anything in that makes me feel uncomfortable or something that I don't like. All right, well, what's happening in chapter nine is Paul is talking about some tough things. And in his audience, there are two groups of people. There are people who are honestly seeking answers to some complex issues, 
And there are others who have already drawn hard lines. And so today we're going to see a shift in the way that he's responding to objections. All right, so let's pick up in chapter 9 where we left off last week. A quick recap. In Romans chapter 8, it is probably the most climactic chapter of all of Scripture. And in it, there are some amazing, beautiful truths about how because of Christ, there is no condemnation, no guilt, no shame. That has all been carried away because Jesus took it on the cross on our behalf. That we see God's forever love, that he is fully committed to his people, and that nothing can ever separate us from him. And so these are amazing truths to hold on to, life-changing truths. But there's this kind of elephant in the room. And so as you get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, you might wonder, why does Paul talk about this? And what's happening is he knows a church that's made up of of a bunch of Gentiles and a bunch of Jewish believers with with Old Testament roots. He knows that people are going to look at God's promise and say, okay, God promised to bless Israel. We know that the fulfillment of that blessing is in receiving Christ, but so many Jewish people have rejected him. And so how do we make sense of that? Did God's plan fail? Did God's promise fail? Has he now shifted course? And so Paul knows if we can't make sense of why so many Jewish people have rejected Jesus, if it's, if it's true that God's plan somehow failed and he had to shift course, then what's to say that he won't shift course again? What ground do we have to stand on to say that Romans 8 is forever true of us? So he knows I've got to make sense of Israel to give confidence in the rest of the promises I've talked about, right? So in chapter 9, he basically says, look, there have always been two Israels. He says there's a physical Israel, which are those who are are with their heritage and their physical descendants. They come from Abraham. But then there's this spiritual Israel, and that's a smaller group of people who've adopted the faith of Abraham, that they believe God's promise. And so whether it's the Old Testament and people are looking forward in anticipation to the hope of a Savior, who we know is Jesus, or whether it's now and we look back to fulfillment of the Savior who came, God's plan from the very beginning was to bless those who trusted in Christ. All right, so his plan hasn't, hasn't changed. But to illustrate or unpack this truth, he's, he shows that God throughout history has chosen to bless some, but not bless all. Right? And so that's a very controversial statement, but that's what Paul begins to unpack. And so as he unpacks that God blesses some, not all, he knows that that will raise an objection. And the first objection he deals with is people who would say, that just doesn't seem fair. I mean, how could God bless some and not all? That, that's just, that's not fair. And so the first group of people in verses 14 through 18, these are people who have honest questions. They heard a hard truth and they're trying to make sense of it. And so Paul handles it by saying, okay, let's think through this. Let's not talk about fairness because fairness is getting what you deserve. And if we get what we deserve, we get hell and nobody wants that. So let's talk about it in terms of justice, all right? So let's think, does anybody receive injustice? And so what he shows us is that some people receive judgment. They get what they deserve, right? Through, through their own hardening of their hearts, their own rebellion, they get what they deserve, while other people receive God's mercy, which is what they don't deserve, God's grace. But at the end of the day, no party, whether the judgment party, their mercy party, no party receives God's 
injustice, right? So he, he shows that, hey, the biggest defense of fairness is seen by displaying God's mercy. All right, so, so that's verses 14 through 18. That's last week. Now he deals with the second objection. So let's look at verse 19, the second objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Right, so, so this objection is for the person who would say like, well, if God chooses things, if he predestines stuff, does that mean we're just a bunch of robots? That our choices don't really matter? How do I know if there's any significance to any decision I've ever made if God is the one controlling this thing? And so that's the, that's the next objection. So let's see how he responds, all right? He says, but you, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no rights over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Right? And so what happens is after verse 19, when we see this objection raised, we expect, I expect from what I know of Paul, that he's going to come in and he's going to provide this beautiful argument that shows that God's sovereignty and human responsibility work hand in hand and that our choices matter and they're real and they have an eternal significance. And, and I believe that. But instead of Paul defending that, he goes a completely different direction. You're like, why did he do that? That sounds so harsh. But if you look at the language there, when he says, but who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? That, that term, answer back to God, shows that this is someone who is objecting with a, with a defiant, critical attitude, right? So verse 19 is not an honest question. It's a harsh accusation. So the underlining tone to the objection that Paul is anticipating is that when it comes to salvation, we think we know what's better than God, right? So the underlining tone in this is, is I feel like I could do a better job if I was in God's seat. And there's this underlining tone of someone saying, if God is like this, then I don't know if I could follow him. And so Paul responds to them by, by showing um, that we're not in a position to take God to trial. I mean, I think about my son, Wit. I've got two daughters, one son, and you would think that girls would dirty up more laundry. It's not true. Not in our house. Like you have one laundry basket filled with two girls' clothes, and you have an equal size laundry basket filled just with his clothes. He cares so much about the way he looks. I mean, he every day he's like, can you fix my hair? And he's got this double crown, so his hair just never looks good, but I fix it, right? And so, but he'll put on an outfit and just think he looks good. Like he, he really cares. So he'll put on his, his outfit, he looks in the mirror and you're like, you're so vain. Um, and so, but either way, and so the other day he put on his, his pants, he put on his t-shirt, he had his hair fixed, he thought he looked good, but it was 20 something degrees outside. And I was like, Wit, you need a coat. And he's like, no, I don't. I was like, yes, you do. And he's like, I don't want a coat. It doesn't, I was like, well, at least a hoodie. I don't want it. He wanted to show his shirt off because he felt like I look good in this shirt. I don't want anything covered it up. So he goes outside in his t-shirt and then he comes in red cheeks, ice cold hands, frozen snots, and he's, he's, he's confused. And I'm like, look, Wit, you don't have the experience of, of like what weather will do to you and what the proper attire is. But here he is challenging me 
right, from a kid's position. So, like, you have a six-year-old challenging a 36-year-old, and they're like, I'm like, who are you, oh, son, to question me? Like, you know, or answer, who are you to answer back to me, right? And it's in the same way, when we challenge God's ways, like, I just, who are you to do this, God? We're a lot like a six-year-old questioning his, his father on whether or not he should wear a coat. And so Paul's saying, look, like, we're really not in a position to take God to trial. He says, we're not the judge over God. He's the judge over us. And so this, this brings us to a really important thing. We have to be careful not to recreate God in a way that's more palatable and pleasant to, to our desires. Rather, we need to acknowledge him for who he's revealed himself to be. And so a question I have is, is when you think about your love for God, is your love for God based off of who he's revealed himself to be? Or is it based off of who you want him to be? Let's keep moving. 22, 23. He says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, that's a, that's a pretty tough verse to wrestle with. Like, did he just say that? Yes, he did. All right, and let me, let me unpack something real quick. Um, look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. It is very clear that God is the one doing the preparing for glory. It states it right there. He prepared. But if you go up to verse 22, it says, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. There's no he there. It doesn't, it doesn't clarify who's doing the preparing. And so you could make a pretty good connection here that the preparation for wrath is our own doing. That, that preparation, we prepare ourselves by our blatant rebellion against God, by putting ourselves in his seat and saying, God, I think life is better without you in the picture. God, I think I could do a better job with my life than having you guide it. I want to be the one in control. Like, that blatant rebellion prepares us and puts us in a position we are deserving of God's wrath. But when we get glory, we have no ground to grab hold of that credit because that's something that God and God alone does. All right. But let's just back up to, to 22. He says, what if, right? This is a question that's not answered. So Paul is not making a statement saying, this is how God operates, but he's saying, what if, what if God chooses to allow some to continue down the path of destruction that they put themselves on while rescuing others who are on the same path? What if, what if God operates that way? What if he chooses some and, and not all? If God operates that way, how are you going to respond? Are you going to refuse to believe in him? Are you going to refuse to be a vessel for mercy? Are you going to refuse to follow Jesus? Like how, if, if that's how God operates, how are you going to respond? You see, in the midst of tragedies that life often brings, in the midst of mysteries and hidden ways in which God often works, in the midst of theological tensions and paradoxes that are woven throughout Scripture, in the midst of 
pain and sorrow and misery and confusion that accompany our existence on earth. We must come to a place where our answer to what if is, yes, God has the right to operate that way. You see, at the end of the day, what if God does this? He's God and we're not. That's why I think verses like Isaiah 55, eight through nine are so important for us to hear. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, Paul seems to be saying that God's chosen course to save some and not all will in the end be more fit to show forth his glory than any other plan we can imagine. What what Paul's getting at here is there's something about this, this backdrop of judgment that when you lay mercy against it, displays God's glory to us in a way that we can't comprehend. So look, if, if God just saved everyone, it's like my glory wouldn't be properly dis- displayed. If I just judged everyone, my glory wouldn't properly be displayed. So he's saying, like, look, there's something about mercy laying against the backdrop of judgment that pushes forth God's glory in a way that nothing else can. And, and I struggle with that. I'm like, I, 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 don't, I don't like hear that and go like, yes, I'm really glad that's there. But I'm like, that's what it seems that Paul is saying here. And we struggle us out of the sense, struggle to believe that concept because that takes us out of the center. You see, instead of God being most concerned about, is that me? <laughs> um, instead of God being most concerned about us, like as, instead of his greatest concern being our salvation, we see that his greatest concern is his glory, right? And so what happens if God is more concerned about his glory than he is with our salvation? That's something that we struggle with because it takes us out of the center of the picture. Um, think about it like this, though. The sun, according to Google, uh, the sun weighs 333 thousand times the weight of the earth. And so what's at the center of, of the solar system? Is it, is it the earth or the sun? It's the sun, right? And so what that weight does is it creates gravitational pull, okay? And so the sun at the center creates gravitational pull that holds everything in our solar system in place. And the sun stands there as, as the sole source of, of heat and light which creates a solar system in which life is possible. Now, if we take the sun out of the center and place the earth in its place, there's no longer the gravitational pull needed to hold everything together, so everything ends badly. In the same way, if we take God out of the center of the picture and place ourselves at the center, it ends badly. From the very beginning of scripture to the end, like whenever we remove God from his rightful place, it ends badly for us. And so we have to get to a place where we are okay with God being about God and God being at the center. Look, verses six through 23 are not easy. They're they're not easy. But are you willing 
to surrender your perceived right to determine what's best? Are you willing to submit humbly to trusting God's good sovereignty? You see, that's where we need to land after these verses. Like, are we willing to surrender our perceived right to know what's best? And are we willing to now submit to trusting in God's good sovereignty? So heavy stuff, heavy stuff. If you've hung with me, you're doing well, all right? You're doing well. This is heavy stuff, but now everything changes, okay? Everything's about to shift. And and so let's just pick up in verse 24, because we have on one hand, a very heavy truth about God's character that first and foremost, God is about God more than he is about us. Hard, heavy truth. But now we're gonna get the other hand where things become really good for us in light of that, in light of God's character. Look at verse 24. He says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. Now, Hosea is an Old Testament prophet. And if you read the story, it's crazy. God calls him to marry for the PG version, a floozy, right? And so he's called to marry a floozy who he knows is going to cheat on him, right? And this is a picture. He's like, hey, I want you, Hosea, to represent me, that you're gonna pursue this girl and you're gonna love her. She's gonna represent Israel and she's gonna cheat on you with other men and she's gonna break your heart and she's gonna go away from you and then you're gonna still pursue her out of your love. Like it's a picture of God pursuing Israel. So he says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. And so in verses 25 and 26, In the context of Hosea, these are quotes about Israel running away from God and no longer being his people and God choosing out of love to pursue them. But what happens is in verse 24, Paul says these verses also apply to Gentiles. In other words, he's saying, look, in the same way that God pursued Israel when they were far, I will pursue Gentiles when they are far. So another aspect of God's character is that he is in the habit of pursuing and making a way for people who are far from him to come near. Look look at verse 27. It says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, And as Isaiah predicted, another prophet, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So he's once again referencing how Israel ran away from God. They deserved to be completely wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah, but God chose to save a remnant so that they might one day prosper. So that we see like in God's character is this, when people are so sinful and so undeserving and blatantly rebelling against God, another aspect of God's character is that he's in the habit of running after them. That's just as true of God as God being first and foremost about God. 
Like you see, this text becomes beautiful as it, as it continues on for us, as we see that, yes, God is about God, but God gets glory not only in choosing some but not others, but he also gets glory in pursuing the, the farthest away. I, I think about this. Let's say that you are here today. Let's just, let's, you are here today, all right? <laughs> um, so think about this. When, if you're here today and you're a Christian, what family member just wrecks you that they don't know Jesus? What friend have you been praying for? What coworker do you look at and be like, God, I think they're a little far gone. Like, I don't know about them. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're, you're skeptical. Your friend drug you, dragged you here. Like, it's going to get good. It's controversial stuff. Come on. And so you're here and, and you're thinking, like, that's me. I'm the one, if you knew the doubts I had, if you knew the questions I have, if you knew the things that I've done, if you knew what last night, like what I was doing last night, like you would not tell me, and I'm telling you right now, the truth of scripture that we see in these prophecies mentioned by Paul is that God has a track record of running after those people. That is good news to know that no one is too far gone for God's grace. No one. No one. And so maybe you're sitting there saying like, okay, Jeff, like you've talked about this, like some are chosen, some aren't. Like how in the world do we know? Um, let me just summarize verses, verses 30 through 33. In this, Paul answers the question of why so many people in Israel have rejected Jesus. And he, he simply says, they struggled to understand that salvation is a gift to receive, not a reward to earn. They just struggled with this concept that this is freely offered. It's something you receive. And so we don't know who will respond favorably to Christ. We don't know who will reject Christ. We don't know at what point of their life that those decisions will be made. So we freely offer this gift to all, knowing that some will come. And so we offer that. So if you're here today, this gift of salvation is being offered to you. It's something that, and like, hear this. God in the history of the world has never once rejected someone who has come to him. So if you come to him in faith and repentance and you're like, God, I want Jesus, he's not gonna be like, well, you're not part of that predestined group. He's gonna be like, yes, come. Like, you're in. Like, you're like, no, he doesn't reject people that come to him. So like, so if you feel like God's pulling you that way, like, come to him this morning. Look, Romans 9. I had a dream that no one came today. <laughs> like, like, like people that show up late are like, what in the world? Like just awkwardly sitting on a row by themselves. And, um, and so look, it's, 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 it provides more questions than answers. Romans 9 provides more questions than answers. And we want God to fit in our little boxes, right? Um, we want him to fit like neatly packaged where it's, I can make sense of this. And if that's how God is, then I can worship him. And, and what we see in this text is that, look, there are some mysteries that exceed our understanding. In our limited sight and wisdom, like in that, we're just not able to sit in a place to tell God that we know better than him. I think, you know, um, on Facebook, which some people still use, um, I put up a question, just like, what are some of your biggest, if you're like, if God's like this, then I don't know if I could follow him type things. Whether you personally wrestled with them or you know someone who's wrestling with them and their response has been, it's been great. Like, I wish I could just answer everyone with a neat box and I can't. Um, but a consistent theme is that people struggle with why is there pain and suffering in the world? And 
something that's helped me in that, it's not a perfect answer. So if you're like, did he answer that today? I'm good to go. No more questions. That's not going to happen. But something's been so helpful for me is this illustration of a bear and a ranger. So let's say that you have a ranger who just has a passionate love for wildlife. And he's walking through the woods and he sees a bear that's been caught in an illegal trap. And so this bear is sitting there, it's like the claws of the trap are in its leg. And the ranger wants so badly to help the bear. So as he's approaching the bear, the bear can only process that here's a human, I'm in pain and I think the human caused it. And so the bear will not allow the ranger to approach and to help. And so it's just like, oh, and so, so, so the ranger has to go back to his station and he, he gets a gun with a tranquilizer dart. And so now the, the bear's like, and he abandoned me, right? Like, like he left me here. And then, then he shows back up. And, and so the bear's like, here he is again. So what's, and then, then the ranger shoots the bear with the tranquilizer dart. And he, and he says, and now the bear's like, you put me in the trap. I'm hurting. I don't know why. And now you're trying to kill me. You're literally trying to kill me. And so, and so as he's becoming tranquilized and the, the ranger's approaching and the bear's like, you're trying to tranquilize me. And it's like, like in this moment, right? The bear's still kind of with it, but he's fading. And so the ranger goes to the trap it starts to push it further into the leg to release that tension. So now the bear's thinking, I'm in the trap, I'm in pain, he's trying to kill me, and now he's just rubbing salt in the wound. But all of that is to release the tension to set the bear free. You, you see, the gap between an animal and the ranger is such that, that he can't process or comprehend why the ranger is doing the things that he's doing, right? And so if there's an intellectual gap between them, how much greater is the gap between us and God? And so there are things about God and the way that he operates that if, if he's infinite in power, if he's infinite in goodness, like he's also infinite in wisdom and there are just some things that we're not gonna be able to fully process, but, like I said, God's track record is to pursue those who are far to draw them near. And he does this through Jesus. That Jesus stepped into history and lived a perfect life on our behalf. He died the death absorbing the wrath that we deserved to make a way for us to enter into eternal life into an eternal relationship with God, the Father. Because of that, we can trust God even in our darkest moments, even in our hardest questions. So if you're here today and you are not a follower of Christ, the offer of Christ is on the table for you. That is something you can receive. And I hope that you do. But if you're here today and you are a follower of Christ, let me just, in conclusion, pull back for a second. This text is so weighty, and there are so many camps and so many divisions that have happened throughout church history. Let me show you one thing that I think is so beautiful. There is something, no matter how we make sense of it, there's something about mercy being displayed on the backdrop of judgment that magnifies glory like nothing else can. So if anything, if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, 
sit on and reflect on what you deserve and what you have received. And let what you have received become so magnificent that it leads you to worship where you glorify God as he deserves. You see, this text, I believe when properly understood, should lead us to greater and deeper worship. God, thank you for your word. As we enter into a time of response, God, I ask that you would draw people to yourself as only you can. That someone sitting here this morning thinking that they're too far gone or that they have done too much would feel their heart moving towards you because you are drawing them. God, let them trust in Christ. And God, I, I pray for those of us that, that believe in you and wrestle with you and have tough questions, God, that we would ultimately find ourselves worshiping you for who you are, that we would see what we deserve because of our rebellion, that we would rejoice in what we have received through the grace of Christ. And God, let that lead us to worship you and to glorify you as you deserve. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.